Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The following podcast contains graphic content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Previously on Unraveled, once a killer. There was a detective trained to profile cases by the FBI. And his assessment was that it was most likely an ex-con who did this. The person was more of a loner. They didn't like to be out in the public or draw attention to themselves. To hear it was him, that was just unbelievable. These one-offs render some of the most valuable tools to law enforcement moot. So when it comes to the, that profile that was done, how did Talbot match up with that profile? He didn't match up to it at all because of how prepared he was. They said it was possible he was a serial killer. He was just some young punk 24-year-old kid that had this crazy fantasy that he was out hunting and found an opportunity to fulfill the fantasy that he had. Looking back on the case that he calls the biggest of his career, Detective Jim Scharf of the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office had a lot to say about the original profile of William Talbot. How do you think they got it so wrong? I think that there's a lot of people that are out here killing that haven't done anything serious before, that now the FBI Behavioral Sciences Unit needs to start studying to see if there's any way to figure these people out, because I can't see one myself. Everybody in the world has secrets. Somebody's secret might be that I was molested as a child, but other people's secrets are that I killed somebody. There's a whole different type of person out there killing very violently that aren't serial killers. This person was the polar opposite of everything police have been looking for. The fear is there's these one-off offenders. 
hiding in the shadows, living a normal life. Here is somebody who's so well known. Right under everybody's nose. From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions. This is Unraveled, Once a Killer, a five-part podcast that investigates the mystery of one-and-done sexual thrill killers who are openly living among us. I'm Alexis Linkletter. And I'm Billy Jensen. When Detective Jim Scharf snapped the cuffs on William Talbot, he knew that genetic genealogy could be a revolution in law enforcement but he didn't anticipate what it would fully reveal. Just one month earlier, Golden State killer Joseph D'Angelo had been identified using genetic genealogy. One month after Talbot, it would be Raymond Rowe. Two of those three offenders had no serious criminal history. I started noticing that a lot of these other people that were being arrested by the use of genetic genealogy are people that only did it once or there's only DNA left at one crime scene. I'm thinking, what kind of a person are we dealing with here? Our investigation of the Roe and Talbot cases in the previous episodes exposed an undeniable implication. Profiles can only be so useful in hunting down someone who has never killed before and then never kills again. In this final episode, we're asking the question, what is the future of profiling in light of genetic genealogy? And how can it possibly plan for this type of killer? Paul Holes, who spearheaded the investigation of the Golden State Killer, recognized the problem facing profilers when he heard the details of Raymond Rowe killing Christy Marac. If I were to take a look at the crime scene, this looks like a predator, likely committed you know, priors and possibly committed more afterwards. The characteristics are there. Therefore, this is likely a serial offender. Did profiling just not account for this species of, of killer? The previous models are a little bit problematic from a behavioral analysis standpoint. Now you have the one-offs who commit a similar enough crime that can fool those of us that have worked serial cases. There hasn't been a really good comprehensive study to figure out, well, what is going on with these offenders? These are professional investigators with decades of experience under their belts, and they're realizing how easily they can be fooled. Why? Because they've been taught to rely on the model that profiles have been selling for decades. When the FBI started its behavioral analysis unit in the 1970s, the focus was on serial killers. These were the headline grabbers, the real-life monsters that captured America's fear and fascination. People like Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, and Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, are perfect examples. Law enforcement would call them lust murderers or something to that effect. They started to study these lust murderers, these serial offenders. There was this idea that serial killings had this sort of addictive quality. What are your thoughts on that? It became apparent that Many of them had a very active fantasy life about the violence prior to them ever committing the crimes, and that they would continue to fantasize even after they had committed the crimes. So profilers in the early days felt that this fantasy was so core to the person that that would be such an addiction 
to them that they would continue to do that until they could no longer do that. You hear the phrase that serial killers never stop. And so if a series stopped, it's assumed that, well, they went into custody. They became disabled. They've died. The addiction theory, by definition, would not pertain to a one-and-done killer. But that type of offender was not being studied or even really acknowledged. If the person wasn't caught quickly, they just weren't caught. And those crimes were then assumed to be part of a serial killer spree yet to be identified. But even with all the attention being given to serial killers, how accurate were the conclusions? I wrote a theory many years ago on low self-esteem being the foundation of addictive illness, addiction, and reading about serial killers and how obsessed compulsive they were. And I decided that, you know, I think this might be an addiction. John Kelly is a criminal profiler and psychotherapist who specializes in serial murder cases. He was a pioneer of the addiction theory. I wrote another film called The Alcohol-Drug-Serial Killer Connection. When you talk to some of these guys, it's very stimulating for them. Going out and hunting someone and uh, stalking someone and finally, you know, gaining complete control and sexual dominance over another person. And then killing them And one serial killer told me, you know, that's the highest of all highs. I mean, you know, it's it's playing God. Most of these guys are extremely hypersexual. In fact, some women have left him. I mean, wives have left him. I mean, they just couldn't keep up with him. I mean, these guys want sex all the time. Yeah, Albert DeSalvo, I remember the Boston Strangler. Like, his wife was like, he wanted it like four times a day. Yeah. Yeah, he's exactly, he's, he's a perfect example. Remember, it is all fantasy-driven, and they never get the fantasy perfect. After a couple weeks or whatever, those cognitive distortions, that internal critic starts on them again, saying to them, you know, that they're just losers, you know, they're, they're just not as good as other people or whatever. And as soon as that starts, they're built in antidepressant is to go back into that fantasy. Because in that fantasy, as long as they stay in that world, they're powerful and they have power. And that's what starts the hunt for another victim to display that power. This belief about serial killers being addicted became such a commonly accepted concept that it's still embraced in some circles today. In fact, in 2017, before the Golden State Killer was identified and arrested, I discussed the GSK case with two prominent FBI-trained profilers. At that point, GSK hadn't been active since 1986. Their take? Something must have happened to him, because he never would have just stopped. Their guesses range from him being dead or infirm, to being in jail or even overseas, but the idea that a killer with his track record would just hang it up was unfathomable. We now know he did exactly that, staying in the same area where he had been killing and living there quietly for more than three decades after his final crime. The addiction theory, which said he would keep acting on his murderous fantasies, was wrong in this case. And here's the thing. 
it's been wrong with other serial killers as well. Some people say a serial killer will never quit. Other people, like Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer from Wichita, Kansas, he quit. That was Clint Van Sant, a former FBI profiler and hostage negotiator. He's referring to the well-known case of BTK, who killed 10 victims over a 17-year period. He last struck in 91 and was later caught in 2005. It was effectively a 14-year retirement. Between BTK and GSK, profilers are now second-guessing the conventional wisdom of the addiction theory. Do you think serial killing is an addiction? Well, I still don't know that we have a lock on human behavior to suggest what is the motivator for every individual. We also talked with Mark Safrick, a former supervisory special agent for the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, for his take. So if we're looking at the question, is serial killing an addiction, um, I would not characterize it as an addiction because the addiction is something that you lose control over. There is clearly a psychological or emotional component to serial murder that satisfies them emotionally. And it's, it's what causes them to repeat their crimes, to commit more crimes. But for the most part, they make those choices willingly. These opposing opinions show that even top profilers don't agree on what really drives serial predators. And these are the criminals they've been studying extensively for four decades. How much harder is it to understand the offenders they haven't studied, the one-and-done sexual homicide killers? The failure to recognize this type of individual and the lack of research done on them has led to some severe misfires in the pursuit of justice, as Paul Holes explains. I've seen where you have a cluster of cases and the assumption is one person's committing all these cases. So when that person's caught, investigation into the other cases stops because they just assume that person was responsible. And it turns out, well, no, you know, DNA testing has shown, uh, actually, there is multiple predators at work in this particular area at that moment in time. The real question is, even if profilers admit the widespread phenomenon of the one and done, can they figure out how to address it? Jim Scharf is skeptical. You can't ever be exact on a science like this, trying to figure out who would commit a crime like this. It's a whole new type of individual that without a DNA profile, they're never gonna get caught. And as long as they keep their mouth shut, nobody's gonna know their secret. There's no question that profiling has been glamorized. Even law enforcement agencies may put more weight on what a profiler can provide to a case than what the reality is. From its very beginnings, profiling has had a near mythological status. Its most famous early use was in the 50s, when New York police were trying to find a serial bomber known as the Mad Bomber. He had started his attacks against Consolidated Edison Power Company, then branched out to highly populated New York landmarks. 
Feeling helpless, authorities enlisted psychiatrist James Brussel to develop a profile of the offender. What he came up with was very specific. He predicted it would be a foreign-born male of Eastern European descent, a loner who might live with an older female relative, and most famously, that when caught, he'd be wearing a double-breasted suit. A search of Con Ed's old employee records led to George Metesky, a man of Lithuanian descent who lived with two older sisters and who had been injured while working for the company and subsequently fired. When police met him at his home late one night, he went to go get dressed and came back wearing a double-breasted suit. Police confronted him about the crimes and he readily confessed. Russell had based some of his conclusions on the language Metesky used in his writings to police. Others, he claims he was simply playing the odds. After all, double-breasted suits were a common attire in the 50s. Either way, this success story helped launch the modern criminal profiling industry. Today, people's perception of profiling has largely been shaped by Hollywood, with movies like Silence of the Lambs and shows like Netflix's Mindhunter championing the profession. We're talking to serial killers. Serial killers. New terminology. How do we get ahead of crazy if we don't know how crazy thinks? Why do you think he removes their skins, Agent Starling? It excites him. Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. I didn't. No. No, you ate yours. It's a representation that even profilers say is overblown. Here's Mark Safrick. Profiling as a catch-all in television, they're doing DNA analysis and they're, you know, they're flying off to do this and that. And it really, that's not what we're doing. We're not super sleuths. Essentially, we're trying to take a potentially very large group of suspects whether they're known or unknown, and narrow this potential pool to a very small slice, if you will, to say the individual that you're looking for should engage like this with coworkers, with family members, with neighbors. They're engaging in this behavior because of this. John Kelly's assessment of Hollywood profiling was a little more blunt. What do you think the way profiling is portrayed on television or in the movies is different in reality? There's a lot of BS on TV. I mean, this takes a lot of work and it takes a, a certain amount of time. You have to understand profiling itself is not a science. Profiling is actually a art. Former FBI investigator Clint Van Sant echoed that same sentiment. Criminal profiling, what we would call, you know, investigative analysis, it's more of an art based on experience. You may see hundreds of murders, hundreds of sexual assaults. You've seen so many of them, you kind of have a gut feeling of what's there. This gut feeling is known as the clinical process of profiling an approach based on experience, intuition, and educated guesswork. It's a finely tuned skill that Van Sand thinks is effective, but vastly overplayed in the media. I think the problem with the public perception of profiles 
our profiler is that that's based upon what they see on television and what they hear in the movies, where they suggest that the profiler is the do-all, end-all, that he or she has visions that tells him who the killer is going to be. You're not going to get a profile that said, John Smith did it in the billiard room with a lead pipe. It's not going to be that way. If we could say male versus female, if we can say white versus another color, if we can say age, investigators can go out and do the hard work. Is there any correlation between developing a profile and any sort of tunnel vision that can exist within an investigation? There's a tendency sometimes to lock yourself in on who a likely offender is. If a criminal profiler says, well, it's going to be a white male between the ages of 20 and 30, it's an investigative guideline but you don't ever want to allow a criminal profile to have you exclude any other suspects who might be involved. Of course, this response leaves an obvious question. If you can't rely on a profile to accurately exclude suspects, then what good is it? The idea that a profiler can intuitively identify an offender makes for great screen drama. But the risk of inaccuracies could undercut the process as Paul Holes points out. What shortcomings do you observe in the world of profiling? One profiler can take a look at the same information as another profiler and draw some fairly significant different conclusions. And that's the problem. Even the experts can't always agree on the analysis. In fact, a study from 2003 showed that profilers had a wider variance in their analyses than psychics did. And a 2007 study concluded, quote, profilers did not decisively outperform other groups when predicting the characteristics of an unknown criminal. When the FBI's behavioral analysis unit first started, one of the initial thrusts was to create objective classifications of offenders based on crime scene details. One of the primary characteristics they defined was whether a perpetrator was organized or disorganized. Clint Van Zandt explains. We would say an organized offender, that's someone who may have stalked his victims. He may know where his or her residence of the victims might be. They'll bring a weapon to the crime scene. They'll understand how they're going to get into the house. Where a disorganized offender, they may find a weapon at the crime scene. They'll pick up a brick or they'll break it into a house and find a knife and use that. The idea was that once a criminal was put into one of these categories, certain conclusions might be drawn about their motives and mindset. Of course, as Raymond Rowe has now proven, one and dones don't always fit neatly into a box. Rowe was considered organized for the way he appears to have stalked Christy Marac and learned her daily routine. But he was also disorganized in that he didn't appear to have brought a weapon or to have a clean getaway plan for his attack. The FBI therefore labeled Rowe as mixed. But then they took their analysis one step further, attempting to assess his personality. Here's a reminder of what they said as relayed by Detective Chris Erb. The person was more of a loner. They didn't like to be out in the public or draw attention to themselves. As police learned 26 years later, Raymond Rowe actually thrived on public attention. The clinical process approach to him had inaccuracies, and any reliance on it would have misled police. And these types of inaccuracies are common, 
as Paul Holes learned in the Golden State Killer case. What kind of profile was built about the suspect you were hunting? Likely had a military background, possibly was a kind of a law enforcement wannabe type of individual. Uh, however, couldn't uh, hold uh, a steady relationship or a steady job. You know, the typical thing that you see in those early profiles. How did they measure up to the actual suspect? Just like any profile, there were some things in which were fairly accurate. There were things that were widely off base. You know, as an example, couldn't be involved in a long-term relationship, whereas D'Angelo had been married since 1973. In light of these shortcomings, one option for profiling is to shift toward more of a statistical analysis approach, where conclusions about a suspect are derived based on compiled numbers, rather than educated guesswork. This approach has proven effective. But despite the suspect performance of the clinical process, profilers like Clint Van Zandt still defend it. The difference between the clinical process and statistical analysis, do you feel that one is more effective than the other? Now, I think a clinical process and a statistical analysis run hand in hand. You don't ever want to exclude anything from an investigation. You want to run the science and you want to run the experience side by side. It's like a set of railroad tracks. They may curve off to one direction or the other, but we normally keep them together. The smart move for detectives who use a profiler is to take any subjective conclusion with a grain of salt, not let it dominate an investigation. But here's the kicker. Even when one relies only on the objective statistical model, a profile will still fail you at least some of the time, because that's just the nature of statistics. The Talbot case is a perfect example. The high level of organization and the connection of the body dump site to a nearby correctional facility all indicated high odds of the killer being a repeat offender. But Talbot wasn't one. In this case, statistics also failed. To hear the profilers tell it, this is an expected outcome. The chance that a profile is going to get every aspect of the life of an unknown offender correct, I would suggest is probably relatively small. I don't know that I've ever seen a profile that was 100% accurate. It's not a scientific process. It is a, is it a process based on training and experience and education. So I wouldn't expect to be 100% accurate. Being a little off is understandable in some cases. But based on the arrests now being made through genetic genealogy, it looks like there's a more obvious explanation for why profiling misfires on one-and-done cases than simply the odds. There have never been accurate statistics of one-and-dones in the first place. For decades, profilers felt that one-and-dones were an insignificant percentage of unsolved sexual homicide cases. And because of that, these unique killers have largely been ignored which has left many of them to live their lives free from suspicion. Now, genetic genealogy is showing they're not only out there in large numbers, they may even be a majority of outstanding cases. And that brings us back to why we launched this investigation in the first place. Our fear and curiosity about these one-and-done killers that haven't been profiled before. It left us wondering, how much can we really rely on profiling at all? 
Paul Holes understands why some have soured on the process. If something seems to ring true about what the profiler said, it's something worth pursuing, but doesn't mean that's, that's the, the, the only avenue to pursue. A lot of frontline investigators won't even bother with getting a profile done on their case because they go, what good does it serve? It's just going to tell me it's a you know, white male, 25 to 30 years old, who had mommy problems. In light of the discovery of this mysterious breed of killer through genealogy, profilers like Clint Van Zant recognize that profiling can never take the place of hard science. We've got profiling, which is the loose science based upon experience, and we've got genetics, which is the hard science. Profiles can be wrong. Hard science wins every time. You give me a DNA profile that matches a suspect, it doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what the science says in a case like that. Does this mean profiling has nothing to offer on these cases? It's time to get inside these murderers' heads and see what makes them tick. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If someone simply commits a murder for motivation, reasons perhaps unknown, if we don't have linking physical evidence right at that time, and that person in theory never commits another crime again, that is going to be the perfect crime. The identification of the one and done killer has created a problem for criminal profilers. Analyzing suspect behavior by looking at crime scenes 
is largely predicated on recognizing patterns, something that is only possible with serial offenders. With a single scene, the best bet is to establish a link with the victim that would explain the extreme action. But when a person commits a one-and-done murder against a stranger, they leave profilers with so little data to analyze. We asked Paul Holes his take on this kind of offender. Why do you think someone would kill once in a sexually motivated crime that seemingly is so brutal and then never kill again? I think that's a very interesting question. I do believe that many of these one-off offenders probably do have some sort of fantasy related to, to sexual violence, but they don't have the psychology that after they commit that crime, to continue to commit the crime like the known serial offenders that have been identified. Do you think there's a profile that can be developed for the one and done killer? And what do you think it would look like? I do think so. And I bet it's going to turn out while well, a lot of these individuals are not going to fall within the psychopathy spectrum, you know, where they actually do feel emotion, they feel guilt, they feel remorse, they get scared about being caught. And so it's going to be a different category of an offender. We asked our professional profilers how they would analyze this different category of offender. Why might someone commit such an extreme act once and then never again? According to Mark Safrick, one reason might simply be a change in life circumstances. Some offenders can push it down for lots of different reasons. They can uh, get a girlfriend, they can get married, they can have children, they can change jobs. Uh, that all prevent them from acting out again. They can get older sexual homicide offenders over the age of 50. They're very exceptionally rare. So just getting older also would limit it. The age factor has come into play with serial murderers such as the Golden State Killer, who committed his final known act at the age of 40. But most of the one and done strike when they're young, generally in their early 20s. So stopping has nothing to do with aging out of their behavior. Instead, Safrick believes the most likely reason they quit is the harsh reality of the act itself. They can commit the crime, and the reality doesn't live up to what they've been fantasizing about, because fantasy for these individuals is perfect. Blood doesn't have a smell, the victim doesn't defecate, the victim doesn't fight back. Whatever the fantasy is, that rarely manifests itself in reality. And it's not what they expected. Here's John Kelly's take. One and dones just don't like it. They don't like the experience. How do you uh, reconcile the difference between somebody that profilers are like, this has to be a serial killer, it's not, he's not related to the victim, it was sexually motivated, uh, and it turns out that that's the only one that they ever did. Let me go to your guy Roe for an example, okay? This is just my viewpoint on him. You've got a guy that's a younger guy, he's coming up, he's the toast of the town in Lancaster as far as being a DJ. Anyway, this guy sees this girl, he desires this girl, he fantasizes this girl, just like a serial killer. Supposedly he used to pass by her on his way to work. He sees her out sunbathing. He gets an unbelievable urge. 
he moves on her. He just moves on her and completely overwhelms her and controls her for the explicit uh, purpose of having sexual dominance. She resisted. And guys like this, they don't like resistance. That makes them more angry. This guy beats the hell out of her. This guy strangles her. Does what he does sexually with her. And leaves her there. This guy did not have the experience that he expected. So now he doesn't go out and try and do it again. He didn't like it. He didn't care for it. It was too much work. This guy was left in her house with her dead body. That was his reward. And I think it scared the shit out of the guy, if I can be blunt. A strong fear of being caught suggests a more rational psychopathy than is typically found in serial killers, whose desire to strike outweighs any concerns about punishment. Here's Paul Holes. With the one-off offender, they're going to really focus in on that what went wrong, especially if there was something to the, the, the level that they could have been caught. It's not realizing the risk to him until later, and then going, I was so focused in on what I was doing to her, I would never have known that somebody was coming to her rescue. And most certainly with select individuals with uh, the, the right psychology, that fear may be great enough to prevent them from offending again. John Kelly is willing to concede multiple theories to explain the one-and-done killer, but with a caveat. Whether they were scared of getting caught, whether they grew a conscience, whether they were under the influence when they did it, and then they got sober and they didn't do it anymore. There's a lot of different reasons why there could be a one-and-done. But can we honestly tell just because there's no other DNA found? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. In other words, he believes that a lot of these one-and-dones may have committed other acts that just haven't been connected to them yet, which is completely fair. There is always the chance that these murderers adapted after their first kill. And in our other interviews, all the old-school profilers lean that way. Are there people like that? Sure, absolutely. But I would say it's probably more rare than the offenders who then, even if they delay for a number of years, then go on and, and act out again. In my experience, when you are not able to discern a a motive and you've got a sexual homicide component to it, then I would say the chances are good that you're likely dealing with a serial offender. As a reminder, neither Raymond Rowe nor William Talbot were ever connected to any other serious crimes. What we're really taking a hard look at is this idea of the one and done killer. What is your opinion on sort of the emergence of this group of killers since genealogy has been implemented to catch killers? I wish there was greater insight into the one and done. I'm just not 100% convinced that one and done is just the one and done. I just think there are so many unsolved crimes out there that we simply haven't linked. When you start to slide along that emotional continuum, 
to someone who enjoys the power, dominance, control, whatever feeds their emotions, that's when you start to get the multiple crimes. And that's where our challenge becomes, do we have 21 and duns across the country? Or do we have two serial killers that have committed 10 apiece? We don't know that. And I think that's what keeps profilers up every night. I began to wonder why there was such resistance to the numbers that genetic genealogy appeared to be showing about the one and done phenomenon. And then I figured it out. Profilers are slow to embrace the one and done idea because they honestly don't know what to do about it. I asked each of them the same question. Their responses were telling. Do you think it's possible to develop a profile to profile one and dones? No, I don't think you can unless you're seeing some kind of posing, uh, some kind of taunting of the police. I think there has to be more to it than just the murder. Is there any way that we could say that this guy will not kill again? Or he's one and done? I think that's impossible. A criminal investigative analyst may well be able to look at a single crime and suggest, is this an organized or disorganized offender? Unfortunately, the more crimes attributed to one individual, the better we start to understand who that individual might be, why and how he commits the crimes that he does, and where he might go next to find his next victim. With one case, it's really difficult to say, this is in fact what your killer is. If you know, then you had another and you had a third, that's where we can be the most beneficial, I think. In other words, profilers admit they have no answer for the one-and-done killer. They never have. And perhaps, with not enough data, they never will. But science does have the answer. All it takes is the awareness and willingness to use it. As Paul Hulls advocates. That's where genealogy is huge, because this one-off offender can control, well, I'm not going to commit another crime, my DNA is not going to get in the system, my fingerprints aren't going to get in the system, etc. But a third cousin person the offender doesn't know ends up putting their DNA just trying to figure out their ancestry and that is the one little you know thing that law enforcement can now use to catch this guy that has just basically been hiding in the shadows living a normal life I didn't appreciate how revolutionary this tool would turn out to be for unsolved cases and how many one-and-done killers do you think could be walking free at any given moment thousands. So this entire idea of one and done killers it seems as though this type of killer is much more prevalent than we originally thought. And I really don't think anyone has shined a light on this type of killer in any significant way in the past. I think the bottom line is, is that these one and done killers were there all along, but the profilers missed it. Right, and I think it's hard to admit when you miss something. We've spoken to a number of profilers, and across the board, when asked, do you think a profile can be done on this type of one-and-done killer, they said no. I thought what they should have said 
is I just need more data. And I think that was Paul's point. You know, Paul Hull said a profile could be done. We just need the data. And that's what he was saying. He was saying, now we have the data. Someone just has to go in and crunch it. I think profilers have been relying on their intuition more than data for too long. And now genetic genealogy has come along and said, you know what, there are a lot of holes in what you were thinking. Especially because the first time that genetic genealogy was used to catch uh, a serial killer or any killer was 2018. It's only been three years. So this isn't necessarily uh, an attack on profiling, but they do need to adapt yeah. in, in the light of these developments about these one and done killers. Profilers can now look to see what the patterns are. If they get 100 or 200 one-and-done killers, they might be able to see something from that data that they can use for the next case that they're, they're trying to solve. Right. They shouldn't say a profile can't be done. They should be figuring out how they're going to profile them. Genetic genealogy exposed a giant hole in our investigative process, one that has allowed one-and-done killers to calmly live among us, with their dark secret buried deep in the past. Those days are now numbered, and for the profilers who look closely, they can see the writing on the wall. In today's world with the technology and the DNA in general, the day is going to come when a lot of us Profilers aren't going to be around. <laughs> I think technology is taking over. Genealogy is going to lead you to somebody. And I, I think it's God's gift to all of us. Thanks for listening to season four of Unraveled. Be on the lookout for season five with an all-new investigation from Alexis and me, coming soon. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, Jeff Kuntz, and myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing is by Eric Smith. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy. Thank you for listening, for your support. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 